All right, let's uh, open up your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4. Finally going to get to Malachi 4. You ready? Y'all ready? I am ready. Pray for me. I ain't ready. I'm going to share some stuff with you this morning that will probably be a little bit different than what you are used to hearing or what you've probably assumed uh, the whole time you've been a Christian. Now, sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not. Thank you, son. Mm, that's cold. Where'd you get that? Quality H2O. Back of the toilet. That's not right. <laughs> so I'm going to address this text in a way that you've, you're probably not familiar with, most of you. Um, some of you, I know, have been uh, aware of this position for quite some time. Some of you will disagree with me, and I want to say from the outset that that's okay. All right? The topic that I'm going to talk to you about today, I want to say this, is an open-handed issue. It is an issue that there's lots of disagreement on in the text, in the, in the community of believers. There are some who will divide over this issue, but that's not us here at the church, not at the well church, okay? These are important matters, uh, but they are highly debated matters, and you need to search out the scriptures for yourself. You need to read the scripture, you need to study church history, and see where, what the Lord would convict you of and how you should believe. What I'm going to present to you today is the view that I hold and that I am fairly convinced of. That's not to say that I don't see any, uh, any strength to the other positions. I do think that I have a fairly decent grasp of why others believe the way that they believe. And we have those of you in here who believe the way that, that others believe in our area. And I'm going to define that here in just a moment because you don't have a clue what I'm talking about probably. I'm going to be talking a little bit today about eschatology, the last things, okay? And what I'm going to primarily be focusing on is an amillennial understanding of the last things. Things. Now, that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to a lot of you, but I'm going to try to define those terms so that you can understand them with relative ease, I hope. The amillennial view is set in opposition or at least contrast to primarily dispensationalism with, with a, a well, an opposition or a contrary nature also to regular premillennial views and more in line with a post-millennial view, but it's different than post-millennialism. Now, you probably not understand, most of you haven't understood anything I've just said. Here's a basic breakdown of what I've just said. Is that amillennialism sees that the end times, the last things, the kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, the tribulation as being concurrent right now. So in my opinion, the thousand-year reign of Christ is happening right now. 
And it began upon the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ that the kingdom was inaugurated. Jesus Christ sat down on the throne in heaven. Hey, man, did you go all the way to Sphinx? You are the man. You see that? (laughs) Titus, you'll get your license soon. (laughs) So, amillennialism sees the kingdom and the tribulation running concurrent right now. Both of them are growing, and we're pushing toward a growth of the church and a growth of the kingdom. And the enemy is growing in power as well. And at the end, there's only one second coming. Jesus Christ comes and he destroys wickedness and he resurrects and calls up and brings in the elect into his presence, all those who have believed, and then the great white throne room of judgment, okay? Where then he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, Postmillennialism believes very similar to that, but they believe that the kingdom of God, the church, will completely overwhelm all wickedness and evil, and that's how... Uh, the world is overcome and when Christ comes in the second coming that he is handed the bride in all of her glory and then he will deal with whatever small bit of wickedness is left over then we have the great white throne of judgment the new heavens and the new earth in in another way of thinking there is dispensationalism and premillennialism historic pre-mill and then dispensationalism which teach that there's a literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. And the dispensational pre-trib, mid-trib, or even post-trib rapture is not the second coming of Jesus Christ, but it is an instance in which Jesus takes the church out of the world, and then the tribulation strikes the world. And after that tribulation, he will come in physical form in the second coming and establish the thousand years millennial reign here on the earth in Jerusalem. Is that about right? <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Brother Keith Sherlin is a dispensationalist, hardcore to the bone, okay? He and I have probably spent more hours talking about dispensationalism than uh, anything else. But we love each other, and I'm praying for him. (laughs) It is. But I want you to, and I mention that because I want you to see that though he and I uh, disagree on eschatology and the way that we understand Israel and the way that we understand the church is that I love Keith and I respect him and I respect his view, and I believe that he has reasons why he believes what he believes, and I know he loves the Bible, so I leave room for that. He could be right. I don't know if he would say that I could be right, but we could both be wrong, right? This is an open-handed issue, and we're trying our best to harmonize the text of Scripture and to do justice to the Word of God, and I know that he's trying to do that too. I'm going to give you my view today. Now, I don't have time to fully lay out a dispensational view, and I couldn't do it justice like Keith would be able to do it justice. So one day, maybe he and I will have to have a friendly debate over (laughs) amillennialism and dispensationalism. But uh, for today, I just want to set out just a, a, a small understanding to show you the distinction of what I believe versus what a dispensational would believe or a premillennial believer would would believe. So why am I saying all of this? Because when we get to the last chapter, really the whole book of Malachi, but when we get to the last chapter, what we see is Malachi start to talk about this 
desolation, this abomination reaching its peak and great destruction and judgment by fire coming upon his hearers, coming upon those who have, who have offered blind sacrifices, who have offered sacrifices that were brought in violence and basically they were making a mockery of God, they were making a mockery of the temple and they were desecrating the temple and uh, doing injustice to God. And we come to chapter 4. Now remember in Malachi that we've already established at least what I believe the, the Bible here in Malachi teaches is that when he speaks in Malachi 1, 2, and 3, what he's talking about when the messenger of the covenant is coming, when he says, my messenger who establishes John the Baptist comes to make straight the paths, to make a way for the messenger of the covenant, that we, he's talking here about John the Baptist, who we see at the beginning of the Gospels, and he's talking about John the Baptist making the way, clearing the path, for Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, who is the messenger of the covenant, through which the Levitical covenant that we see in chapter 2 is established through the Messiah, through the messenger of the covenant. And we've said here that in Malachi chapter 2 and 3 especially, that we see that this judgment, this refining fire, comes through the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in that he is the dividing line and all of those who reject the Messiah will pay and will be cut off from the face of the earth, will be cut off from relationship with, with the Father and relationship with Yahweh. Okay, Now, we understand, too, that the refining and the fire is both good and bad in a, in a manner of speaking. So the bad would even still be good. But what I mean is, is that the fire does two things. It purifies as it burns away the chaff, as it burns away the sin. And we understand that John is the one who said, I came baptizing you with water, but there's one coming after me that will baptize you with the Holy Spirit with fire. And we see the fire coming down upon the earth in the form of the Holy Spirit. We see it in Acts chapter 2. We read about this all-consuming God who has come to dwell among his people in Jesus Christ. He walked among his people. He tabernacled among his people. And when Jesus Christ left the earth and ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit who also came in fire and rested upon the apostles and in that moment demonstrated exactly what Malachi is prophesying here, that whereas old Israel, where ethnic Israel, where national Israel was making a mockery of God and dividing the nations, you remember that's what he kept on saying, that the nations will know my name, the nations will know that I'm great, but you are profaning my name and driving them away. And so they are dispersing the nations and turning the nations away. But when we see the Holy Spirit, the fire come and consume the apostles, we see what? The ingathering of the nations. Everybody's focused on the tongues in, in uh, Acts chapter 2. But that is just a side note that the Spirit coming and resting in tongues of fire is meant to convey the idea that all the nations will hear in their own language. It's a turning over of what happened at the Tower of Babel. And what they were trying to do in a fleshly way, God destroyed. But what God would do through the Lord Jesus Christ would be established forever and all of the nations would be drawn in to the person and work of Jesus Christ, to Yahweh. And you remember what 
they said. They said, what is this? We hear these men speaking in our own language. And so we see the nations then upon the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, upon the fire coming down, we see it as salvation and an ingathering and a proclamation to the Gentile nations that they would come in to God and that they would turn and obey God. But at the same time, that same fire that fell, even in Acts chapter 2, there were some that saw and said, oh my goodness, God is among us, God is here, we must believe. There were also those there that rejected what they saw. They rejected the Holy Spirit, they rejected the teaching of the Messiah and the gospel, and they said, these men are drunk. Just like they had rejected Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so what we have established through the first three chapters of the book, hopefully, is that the judgment and the refining all take place in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what happens now is we roll into chapter 4, and he's already talked about the judgment that is coming at the end of chapter 3 when he says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against, against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is, the pro, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So they are mocking God. They are saying these things to God. And he is saying to them, woe to you because there's coming a time when uh, those who do not fear my name will be cut off and there will be a great distinction between the righteousness those who are unrighteous and those who are wicked and so here we are at chapter four and he's talking he's going to talk about the destructions the destruction that awaits who his hearers we must be careful when we're reading scripture not to allow the traditions and the ways that we've always been taught to trump what the bible says and what the bible is teaching us in context Okay, so with that thought in mind, let's read Malachi chapter 4. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's only six verses. Let's stand to our feet. The Bible says, For behold, the day is coming, <clears throat> burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, what I want to talk about is when and what is he talking about? 
What are the clues in the text of Scripture that would lead us to a conclusion of what he's actually talking about and when is this going to happen? There are some clues here and there are are, uh, even progressive revelation in the New Testament that I believe will help us to understand exactly what he's talking about here. And I would also say, and we'll talk about this, that there are greater implications beyond the specific fulfillment of what he's speaking of here so let's begin at the beginning of the text and let's just uh, walk through this expositionally and let's see if we can dig out uh, what exactly is going on here in the context that we are reading okay now as a side note and as part of the intro I would almost guarantee you that as I read this all of your minds almost automatically went to the end of time of the destruction of the entire world of wickedness at the end of time, at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that right? Most of us in here? Well, I would say that, that we need to challenge that idea. And even if you keep the idea, and that's fine, but even if you keep the idea that this, along with other texts in the Old Testament and other texts in the New Testament, that they are solely speaking of the, the second coming, the end times, that we study and see the other views in order to make a rational decision and a biblical consistent decision on what we believe the text actually teaches. I believe that we can get to the meat of the subject in today's sermon if the Lord would grant me some quickness about what I'm about to say. All right? So you guys pray for me. You know how I am. So let's talk about what is Malachi talking about? What instance, what situation? Is he talking about the end times where Jesus Christ, and we do believe in the second coming, both dispensationalists and uh, historic pre-mills, amillennials and post-millennials believe that there is a second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ where he will right all wrongs across the face of the earth and all sinners will pay for their sins and only those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will survive. Let's get that out of the way first and foremost. That's level A teaching. We all believe in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll say this, that we all believe in what's called the rapture. What we disagree on is whether there's a distinction between the rapture and the second coming. Amillennialism and postmillennialism believe that the rapture is the second coming and there is no distinction between the two. Whereas dispensationalism would believe that the rapture and the second coming are two separate events in separate times. Okay? Now, that might have blown you away. I don't believe that there is a rapture that is distinct from the second coming. I do believe that there is a rapture where those who are on the earth who believe will be caught up into the sky as the Lord descends upon the cloud to to wage war on the enemy. But I believe that we're caught up into the sky as he descends in the second coming and we come to the earth with him and all sin and evil are destroyed. In... uh, In contrast to that, a dispensational understanding would be either before the seven years tribulation or mid-tribulation, three and a half years, that the church would be called out as the tribulation continued, and then they would come back when uh, that tribulation is over. Uh, Some believe that they would remain in heaven, and Jesus would come back to the nation of Israel. Okay, that aside, 
Let's read the text and let's see where we can get in the text. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. What do we have here? So we have Malachi speaking to who? Israel. Okay? His his audience, okay? He's writing this to his audience, and he's telling them, he's warning them, a day is coming. A day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. I'm going to admit at the, at the outset that the text is not exactly clear when these things will happen. What we have to do is harmonize the text with other texts in the Scripture, in the Old Testament and Scripture in the New Testament. But we do have uh, historical evidence that I think will clear things up just a little bit. I want to read this from McLaren out of his commentary uh, because I think that it will help us to understand that Malachi here, it, he doesn't give us an exact day and an exact time. And we may even say that Malachi doesn't know the exact day and the exact time. All we do know is, is that he's telling Israel that a day is coming where you're going to be burnt up and the nation of Israel, the house of Israel, the temple, this particular setup, this administration will be no more. Okay? McLaren says, Christianity has taught us many ways of meeting the doubter's difficulty, but the sheet anchor of faith in that storm is the unconquerable assurance that a day comes when the righteousness of providence will be vindicated and the eternal difference between good and evil manifested in the fates of men. The prophet is declaring what will be a fact one day, but he does not know when. Probably he never asked himself whether the day of the Lord was near or far off to dawn on earth or to lie beyond uh, mortal life. But this he knew, that God was righteous and that sometime and somewhere character would settle destiny. And even outwardly, it would be good to be good. He first declares this conviction in general terms and then passes on to a magnificent and terrible picture of that great day. He goes on to say this, and I believe he's right. The incarnation, life, and death of Jesus Christ made a day of the Lord, which has the twofold character of that in Malachi's vision, for he is a savior of life unto life, or of death unto death, and must be one or other to us. But another day of the Lord is still to come, and for each of us it will come burning as a furnace or bright as sunrise. Then the universe shall discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. What McLaren is saying is, is that Malachi is not specific, but what we do know is that he says a day is coming. A day of, the day of the Lord is coming. And what he is going to say in his book, in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, is that in that day, you do not want to be on the wrong side of the line. 
Those who are not with the Lord Jesus Christ die brutal, horrible death in fire and ashes and pain and suffering. But those who are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and have received His Word will escape that judgment and they will enjoy life and prosperity and victory through the Word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say this too. We also, I also believe that any scripture that you look at has its original meaning and its original context to its original hearers. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a greater or more ultimate application or more ultimate understanding in how we are to view it and how we are to receive it as we read the text. Okay? So, when we read the book of Malachi, we must ask, our, ask ourselves, does this have one immediate fulfillment in history and then it's done? Or does it have one future fulfillment and then it's done? Or can we ask the question, might it have an imme a more immediate fulfillment with greater implications and a picture to what will happen in the end times? That's where I will fall today. I'm going to suggest to you that what Malachi is prophesying, Jesus Christ prophesied as well, and it has already happened with greater implications of what will happen on the great day when the Lord comes a second time. All right, just stay with me, all right? Now, the text says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. I want you to turn over with me to the book of Luke, chapter 3. The book of Luke, chapter 3. Now, I want you to hear the language of John the Baptist. Now, it's hard for us to separate out all the verses in Malachi chapter 4 because we need to take that whole context of Malachi 1, 2, 3, and 4, and we need to read it and understand it together in light of the whole teaching. Now, remember that in Malachi, he's already said, my messenger will come to prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant. So all of this is in the context of the coming of my messenger, who we already understand is who? Agreement across the board, John the Baptist. And the messenger of the covenant is who? Jesus Christ. So we see that all of these things are laid in the contextual reality that the coming of the messenger that would prepare the way and the coming of the messenger of the covenant would be the initiation of what we see being prophesied here. So look with me at Luke chapter 3 when John the Baptist comes, okay? <clears throat> Luke chapter 3 verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis and Lysanias. I should have started later. Uh, verse 2. During the high priesthood of Anna, Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, that's John the Baptist, in the wilderness. Now watch what he says. And he went into all the region uh, uh, around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance. He is calling the nation of Israel to repent of what? 
of exactly what Malachi had said that they were doing. They continued to do it. They continued to be wayward, and it even got worse for them to build up man-made rules and regulations when they didn't even follow the rules and the laws of God themselves. And he went into all the region of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Listen. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become uh, level ways and all flesh, all flesh shall, shall see the salvation of God. You see it. That exactly what we're talking about, that the, when the Messiah, the, the messenger of the covenant will come, he will, he will judge with fire, and he will bring them to their proper place, and he will purify with fire, and he will bring them to their proper place. He will bring the high things down, and he will bring the low things up. That he is a judge, and he is a purifier, a refiner, a redeemer. Let's keep on. Verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized to him, we understand that these are the Pharisees. These are the leaders of the nation of Israel who had been wayward, and, and they're the ones that were offering the blind sacrifices that, the, that were uh, uh, being des you know, uh, uh, bringing abomination, uh, wayward sacrifices uh, to the temple, and they were desecrating the temple. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you to flee? Hang on to that because we're going to see that again in just a little bit. Who warned you to flee? He, you see this already, that God has said there is coming a day when judgment will be poured out upon the nation of Israel because they refused. They refused to believe me. They refused to have faith. They refused to acknowledge me and all that I am and do what I have commanded them to do. And here he says, who warned you leaders of Israel? Why are you here? Nobody's warning you. It, this, this transition from the old administration of the Levitical law code and the Mosaic law code and the, the old covenant, you see it now begin to take shape. And when he speaks in chapter 3 of Malachi of this swift judgment that comes in and, and, and this, this, this un, all of a sudden, this surprise that the Lord comes and he judges and he's going to flip everything upside down is now here. He said, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit, uh, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. You see the distinction once again. He says, you think you're Abraham because of your bloodline, but I'm telling you right now that you have no part. These stones over here are more, more children of God than you are. He says, now watch this. Now hold your Bibles right there to Malachi chapter 4. And then we're going to turn over to, to Luke chapter 3 verse 9. He says, the day is coming. This is Malachi 4, second part of verse 1. The day is coming uh, that shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The whole tree is going to be obliterated. Turn back over. Luke chapter Three, let's start in verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
This is what he's telling the, the leaders of the nation of Israel, the ones who are making the sacrifices in the temple, the teachers of the law, the teachers of the things of God who have went so wayward. You see this uh, coming into fulfillment over and over and over in the text of Scripture. We see that it's this inauguration of the new covenant of the kingdom of God. The transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. The transition from the law written in code to the law written on your heart. The law of Moses, the law of Christ. There's a shift, a transition. And God is saying that through the Messiah, through the, the, the Christ that is to come, national Israel, ethnic Israel, the house of God in the religious system, the theocracy will be torn down, not because God's promises have failed, but because Christ will fulfill all of the scriptures in causing them to be what they were supposed to be the whole time, but they couldn't fulfill it because of the weakness of their flesh. That Christ would now do it, and he would be their righteousness. He would be their fulfillment of the law. Let's look also at and I, I don't have much time, and so forgive me if I'm moving quickly, but we can talk more about this after if you want to or, or another day. Turn with me really quickly to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, let's start in verse um, 15. I didn't do it. In Matthew chapter 24, we have Jesus Christ prophesying of the abomination of desolation. And that sounds like a big phrase, but it's really not all that complicated. <clears throat> the abomination of desolation is basically the the ones in the temple, the ones bringing sacrifices or the temple itself becoming an abomination to the Lord. It's becoming a stench to the Lord. It's abominable. It's wicked, right? And so the Lord removes his presence from the temple, from Israel, and it's left desolate. It's left empty. It's left alone. Does that make sense? So the abomination of desolation is really just wickedness that leads to separation or uh, God withdrawing his presence so that it's not there anymore. This is what we see prophesied in the Old Testament. This is what we see coming uh, for the house of Israel, that the house would be torn down, that the house would be left bare, it would be destroyed because it had not built itself on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's start reading here uh, in chapter 15. Now let's start back in, let's start back in verse, there's so much. Let's, let's, let's start in verse 1. Matthew 24, verse 1. Okay, now what I want you to see here is, well, we could start back in Matthew chapter 23. But I'll just, let me, let me just, uh, <laughs> let me just kind of, um, give you a breakdown of what chapter 23 is. Basically, chapter 23 is him uh, reaffirming and establishing the lament and the waywardness of Jerusalem. And he is saying that how I long to gather you together, but you refused. 
You have, and you and your fathers have continually killed the prophets. You have continually went wayward. Remember that Malachi was the last Old Testament prophet to bring about these prophecies, speaking of these things to come. John the Baptist was actually the last prophet before the administration would switch completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did they do to John the Baptist? They cut his head off. So they've, they've disbelieved, they've killed all the prophets, and they have refused to acknowledge God for who he is, and they've certainly refused the Messiah. All right, so here we go. Matthew 24, starting at verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now, this is kind of subtle here. But we see in the abomination of desolation that the sacrifices were an abomination to the Lord. And so the Lord's presence left the temple. And here we see, and all throughout the the Old Testament, we see judgment being pronounced from the Mount of Olives. Okay? And so here in Matthew chapter 24, we see upon the condemnation and the judgment laid out in chapter 23 of Matthew, leading into Matthew 24, we see the presence of the Lord, what? departing from the temple jesus christ jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to him to point out to him the buildings of the temple but he answered to them we'll say in a second where did jesus christ go when he left the temple anybody know the mount of olives jesus christ is the prophesied judgment upon israel it goes on You see all these, do you not? Speaking of the temple. Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? Now remember, they just came out of the temple. Everybody wants to make this about the end times, okay? But remember the context. Context, context, context. Where had he just come out of? He just came out of the physical temple that they were literally looking at because the disciples say, point it out. Do you see all these great buildings? And Jesus say, you see all these great buildings? There won't be one of these stones left on another on these buildings. You will see. Okay, here we go. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one stone left here upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What are these things? The destruction of the temple. When the stones will be taken off the other stones. He just told them that's what's going to happen. They can say, when's that going to happen? He goes on. He says, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you, now watch. 
And now he's told them about these signs. He said, you're going to see all these things, but the end is not yet. Just know they're going to hate you. Know this, this tribulation's coming. Just know that all of this is happening. And watch here in verse 15. So when you, and now who's he talking to again? Let's remember context. Who's he talking to? Somebody help me. Come on. Israel. He's talking to his disciples right now, but he's talking to Israel, right? He's talking to his disciples. They said they're standing in front of Jesus Christ, okay? A.D. 30, A.D. somewhere in 32. He's standing in front of his disciples. He's talking to them. They say, you see these buildings? Wow. He says, yeah, you see these buildings? They're going to crumble, not one stone on another. They said, when's this going to happen? He says, there's going to be all these signs. Remember, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, but the end is not yet. And then he goes on to explain further. He says, so when you, speaking to who? disciples Israel okay so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel going back to Daniel chapter 9 now everybody wants to make Daniel everybody wants to make Matthew 24 out to be something that's happening at the end times but I'm here to tell you that you at least need to study the language because he tells his disciples when you see the abomination of desolation that was spoken of in Daniel he says, when you see it, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then, watch this. Then, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus Christ is so convinced that they will see it. He said, when you do see it, run. Run. Don't stay and fight. And you know what people would have normally done in those instances? And we're going to see this actually happened. Lots of atheists and those who would be contrary and condemning of the word of God take Matthew 24 and the understanding that it's about a future time solely and they say, you see there, this discredits the Bible because of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 speaking to this generation. He goes on later and he says, this generation will not pass away before all these things happen. And the atheists and those who are contrary to the word of God, they say, see there, Jesus was wrong because he hasn't come back yet. It's been 2,000 plus years. Well, he goes on here. He says, let the one on the housetop not go down to take with it his... Uh, Take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant uh, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. Now, I need to read further, but I want to stop right here for just a second. Now, what do we know so far? is that Malachi is speaking to Israel and he says the day is coming when Israel will be destroyed. There will be no root, no branch. We flow right into the New Testament then in this 400 years of no words. And then bam, John the Baptist, who is Elijah, shows up on scene. He is making straight the paths of the Messiah of the covenant. The Messiah of the covenant comes. He said, it's over for you. The axe is laid at the root and you are going to be destroyed. Now, Many of you may know where I'm going with this, but there is, a, there is a fulfillment of this. Now, I'm not of the opinion that this is the sole fulfillment of this, but I see that the specific words laid out in Malachi chapter 4 and the specific words laid out in Matthew chapter 24 find its at least first fulfillment and immediate fulfillment in the destruction of the temple in the great war between 66 AD and 74 AD with the, with the temple being destroyed in 70 AD. Okay? Exactly what Jesus Christ prophesied 
would happen to Israel, to the temple. The stones would be taken off of one another in 70 A.D. Now, historical accounts recorded by Josephus. I want to read you some of this just to show you just how one for one it is that what Jesus prophesied to what actually happened to Jerusalem. I won't read it all. There's, there's tons of it. You can get these free online, okay? Now, Josephus is not canonical, inerrant, infallible words, but it's by nearly all accounts a credible historical document of just recording what happened. <clears throat> Josephus writes in book 6, chapter 5, speaking of the war where Titus, the Roman emperor, sought to destroy uh, Jerusalem, this war that's going on here. The flame was also carried a long way and made an echo together with the groans of those who were slain. And because this hill was high and the works at the temple were very great, one would have thought the whole city had been on fire. Nor can one imagine anything either greater or more terrible than this noise. For there was at once a shout of the Roman legions who were marching all together and a sad clamor of the seditions who were now surrounded with fire and sword. He goes on. When they saw the fire of the holy house, they exerted their utmost strength and break out in groans and outcries again. Perea did also return uh, return the echo, as well as the mountains round about the city, and augmented the force of the entire noise. Yet was the misery itself more terrible than this disorder. For one would have thought that the hill itself on which the temple stood was seething hot, as full of fire on every part of it, that the blood was larger in quantity than the fire, and those who were slain more in number than those that slew them for the ground did not appear visible for the dead bodies that lay on it but the soldiers went over heaps of those bodies as they ran upon such as fled from them the fire so jesus here says malachi says there's coming a day when the blaze is going to come and destroy the root and the branch jesus christ says that not one stone in this temple will be left upon another, but that it will be destroyed and it will be undone and it will be left desolate. In this great battle led by Titus, led by those who would come and destroy uh, Jerusalem and destroy the temple, it would, it would come in such a magnificent way that Josephus would record that there had never been any, anything like this before upon the face of the earth. According to Josephus, there was 1.1 million Jews slaughtered in the battle that would destroy the second temple, the Herodian temple, and leave it desolate and leave it demolished. 1.1 million Jews. Now, normally, there wouldn't be 1.1 million Jews in Jerusalem. But since it was Passover, all of the surrounding villages, all of the surrounding communities would flock to the city, and they were all there for the battle. But guess who wasn't there? The historical accounts tell us that, according to the records, not one Christian died. You know why? Because they remembered what Jesus said, and they fled and they went to the mountains. 1.1 million Jews who had not received the Lord Jesus Christ, but all those who believed in Messiah, fled to the mountains and escaped death. 
exactly like Jesus Christ prophesied. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton, ton of time here, but I will tell you one more thing. You remember what he said here about famines and about wars and about all these things? I'll tell you two records from Josephus in the, in the history of this. I'm, I'm kind of running out of time. That proved to us that this happened in this war. The first is this. Is that the gold in the temple was magnificent. It was piled to the ceiling. It was a magnificent sight. And when the city was, now, Titus had ordered <clears throat> that the temple be not be set on fire because he wanted the wealth in the city. But the Jews would not surrender. He offered them plea bargains. And part of this was because they were wanting to make false sacrifices and all of these types of things. And the Jews were fighting against them, but they had not received the Messiah. So all of their sacrifices would be an abomination after Jesus Christ had resurrected and ascended into heaven. So every sacrifice would have been made in lawlessness and in abomination. Titus had, had given orders to not burn the temple. But during one of the raids, one of the Roman soldiers had in some type of scuffle or some type of fight, he had thrown a torch into the Holy of Holies and it lit the curtain on fire. And when the curtain caught on fire, it ravaged the whole temple it ravaged the Holy of Holies. It ravaged the whole city and burned it to the ground. History records that the fire was so hot that it melted the gold. And the gold ran out of the temple and into the temple walls in between the stones. These stones were so large that many would, would estimate that they weighed a million pounds. Sounds too great to believe, doesn't it? Just read the history of it. A million pounds. The Herodian temple was far more magnificent in an outward appearance than anything that had come before. Well, guess what happened when that fire melted the gold and it ran between the stones? The Roman emperor and the soldiers pried the stones one off the top of the, of the other to get the gold. What did Jesus say? Not one stone will be left on another. It was the destruction that had been foretold in Malachi and in Matthew chapter 24. The last one I want to tell you is the famine. <clears throat> and the famine was so strong. See, the Jews had been cut off from getting any food. And if they were seen out to get food, they were killed and murdered and tortured in horrendous ways. All of their food was taken that they could grow. All that they could get was taken. They were not allowed to even be out to get food. They had to hide. The famine got so great that they were swelled up from the lack of food, dying at every turn. One lady was so hungry, the historical record goes from Josephus, that one lady was so famished and so hungry that she had roughly a 10-month-old baby. And she had decided that the baby should not grow up in this atmosphere anyway, so she killed the baby and she cooked the baby and she ate half of it. When the smell of the cooked baby arose and made it to the nose of the other Jews who were starving as well, they made a dash at her, a run, and she had hidden the baby. And so they demanded that she show them where her food was. She didn't know, they didn't know what it was. And so after swaying her and threatening her, she went and got the other half of the baby and said that she would share the, the rest of the baby. They were so horrified that they ran out of the room. 
This was the atmosphere of the destruction of the abomination of desolation. Now, do I believe that this is the final fulfillment and there's no greater implications of Matthew chapter 24 or Malachi or Daniel? No, I don't. What I believe is, I believe with John Calvin, who I think it was John Calvin who said that there's no reason for us not to believe that this is not a microcosmic event pointing to the macrocosmic event. So we're pressing on. I'm going to show you here in just a minute. I'm running out of time, but I'm going to show you here in just a minute that the same warnings for Israel are warnings for us as well. And that great and final judgment will be even worse than what Jesus Christ prophesied in Matthew chapter 24 that I believed happened in A.D. 70 in the destruction of the temple. Well, let's turn back to Malachi. I could go on and on about that. Um, I've got plenty of stuff here if you want to read some of this. It's, it's crazy. Um, but we see it almost one for one. And, and well, turn back to Matthew. I, just, I do want to read one thing here just to show you one thing. Sorry. <laughs> I want to show you this because I believe this will be the last thing I say on this, and I'm going to move on because I believe that this is key into understanding some of these things here. One, one second. Let me skip around. I'm going to skip over some of this. Hold on, I'm going to find it. I want you to read, I want to read this one part to you. Okay, here we go. Starting in verse 32. This is still in Matthew chapter 24. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know, <coughs> uh, you know that summer is near. So also... When you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. All these things that he was just talking about, about the destruction of the temple, about the things that they would see. He's saying, when you see this, you know. And listen to this in verse 24, I mean 34. Truly I say to you, this generation, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, heaven and earth here, <clears throat> this, this is a whole other study for a whole other day, but heaven and earth is primarily used to speak of the temple because it's where heaven meets earth. This will make your Bible reading take shape so in so many ways. When you start to understand heaven and earth, he's not speaking literally of the heavens and the earth. What he's speaking of is the temple where heaven comes down to earth. That's heaven and earth right there, heaven on earth. And when he says this, he says, you're going to see the temple be destroyed, and you're going to see it. Now, there are arguments of why we shouldn't take it that way, but all of the language in context in Matthew chapter 24, you will see these things. You see this temple. When you see the signs, you need to flee. And they did flee, and they did escape. It was burnt down. The stones were torn off. When you see the things, you need to be afraid. And I tell you, when the fig tree, when the tree is ripe for taking down, you'll know all of these things. And I tell you the truth. He says, this generation will not pass away. You know how long a generation was in those days? Forty years. What would this have been? Jesus Christ is in his ministry. It would have been roughly 
A.D. 30 to 33, what's 30 plus 40? 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed, and the stones were flipped one off of the other. All right, well, let's turn back to Malachi chapter 4. <coughs> Verse 2. <laughs> Man, this is awful. All right, this might be our long day. But for you who fear my name, the son, there is so much here. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. We understand that it was those who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ that escaped the coming wrath in the, day, in, in the abomination of desolation, this day of the Lord. And, and I will agree that the uh, abomination of desolation in, on this level was a picture within a picture. I, I don't have a problem with that. And that the second coming is still yet to come when we would see that this is just a small microcosmic picture of what God is going to do to all unbelievers, to the whole earth. You think that the destruction of the temple and the, the great uh, war that was broke out and God came in judgment upon Israel and destroyed Israel and burned it to the ground and starved them to death. You think that was bad? You should go read Josephus. It was horrendous. It was, it's nothing compared to that day for all who deny the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see this coming, we see this, but for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they escape the judgment. You see, when he told them, when you see all these things happening, you need to get out of here. You need to flee. If you're in the field, don't even go back to the house to pack. Hit the road, Jack, right? When, you know, it, it, stay on the rooftops. The, the rooftops were, in many of the villages, were built so close together that it would have been easier for them to travel on that great day when war broke out for them to just stay on the rooftops and just run across the rooftops out to the hills and run up to the mountains. Don't even get down into the streets because it's going to be packed. People are going to be crazy. Stay on the roof. Run across the top of the roof. He said, hope that it's not, hope that you're not pregnant because travel would have been hard for a pregnant woman, right? Hope that it's not winter because it would have been hard to travel in winter. Hope that it's not Sabbath. Why? Because the gates of the city were closed on Sabbath and they couldn't get out. Hope that it's the right time. Hope that the timing is right because you need to get out of here. And they did get out of there. And all those who put their faith, and this is a picture within a picture as well. All of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ escaped that day. They escaped judgment. Now, was their life peaches and cream? No, nah, they ran to the mountains. It was hard. They ran to the wilderness. It was hard. They, when, when all of that was said and done, they, they came back. They ministered. It was hard. They, they received floggings and beatings and persecutions, and people hated them. That doesn't mean that life is going to be perfect and you're going to escape every tribulation, but what it means is, is that you escape the judgment of God. But for you who fear my name, and I had several scriptures here uh, speaking of them treading down wickedness and treading on serpents and the power of the gospel going forth. And, and, and the, the disciples, the people who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the ambassadors of Christ, are victorious. We are not defeatists. We're, we're not looking for a day when we will be destroyed. No, we are conquering. We are overwhelming the world. We're overwhelming evil. How? With the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to be waiting and hoping and, and battening down the hatches and, you know, 
storing up. No, we need to be hitting the road. We need to be going into the byways and the highways and preaching and proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be going into the drug dealers' houses. We need to be going into those who love money too much. We need to be going to the broken and the weary and those who are, are, are heavy laden. And we need to be telling them of the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? So that they might escape the wrath that's coming. This is our call. He says here, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Check out what he says here in verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Now, this might be a little bit, it might throw you off a little bit, but, but here's what I've come to understand about this after much study and prayer. I think verse 5 goes with verse, I mean, verse 4 goes with verse 5. Now watch. If you want to put a little bracket around verse 4 and then put another bracket around verse 5, I want you to write out beside the bracket around verse 4, law. And then I want you to write out beside verse 5, prophet. Okay? This is the law and the prophets. Okay? Moses was the representative head of the law. Elijah was the representative head of the prophets. Now watch what he says putting verse 4 and 5 together. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. One little side note here. When will he send Elijah? Before. Before this day that he's speaking of. When did Elijah come? John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. We've already established, unless you want to go and do everything that we've already done, John the Baptist is Elijah. He comes in the spirit of Elijah. So this seems to indicate in context, if the Bible, if the words mean anything, that John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Elijah, came before that day. And he would be the one that would usher in the beginning of this judgment. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awful day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I believe this fits together so well. Jesus Christ says, even in, the, in what I understand to be a prophetic um, position on the abomination of desolation, the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., he says, when you see all these things coming, the, the end is not yet. These are just the birth pains. This is the beginning. This is just a small taste of what's going to come. This is not the end of the show, but what you see here is going to be a very good indicator of what awaits those who do what Israel did and completely and continually defame my name and make an abomination out of my sacrifices and out of what I have done. Well, what about these law and prophets? Why would he say here in the middle of this, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I command him at Horeb for all Israel? Just quickly, a couple of things I want to point out. It was the, it was the breaking of the law that they were guilty of in the whole rest of the book. And what was the breaking of the law indicative of? That it was a heart issue. 
that they had no faith. They did not love God, and that's why they broke God's law. It wasn't the specific breaking of the law, but the specific breaking of the law pointed to a deeper and greater issue, which was a wayward heart. And he's saying, remember the law and that it was for Israel. I think a side note here is that we see that the law was for Israel. And then he says, in, and I think in this twofold uh, passage right here, I think these go together. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes, rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, behold, remember this for behold, because I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will start to turn the hearts of the fathers. Now, how did, a, how, and, and John the Baptist did. Now, some didn't receive the message. Who? The Pharisees, the religious elite of Israel. They didn't receive it. As a matter of fact, when they came out, John looked at them and says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you guys? I didn't ask y'all to come out here, right? But those who would come out who were warning to genuinely hear, and they weren't trying to, they weren't trying to uh, set John up. They weren't trying to kill John. They really wanted to hear what he had to say. What did he have to say? Messiah's coming. Messiah's coming, and Messiah's here. Messiah's coming, and Messiah's here. It was all about the Messiah. Now, watch this. Turn over with me to Luke <clears throat> chapter 24. Please don't forget that all of this, all of this Malachi is all about the, the appearing of Messiah who would come to set things straight and finally do what had to be done. Look in uh, Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. Remember the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. Remember the law and the prophets are always spoken of in the New Testament many times. <clears throat> it says that very day, starting in verse 13 of, of chapter 4 in Luke. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And they said to them, what is this? And he said to them, what is this conversation <clears throat> that you are holding with, with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking, said, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? I love Ninja Jesus. He's like my favorite. He's like right there. And he, they can't, they don't know. He's like, I just write, every time I see that, I write Ninja Jesus beside it. He said, and he said, to them, and I love, he's got such a sense of humor, right? I mean, how can you not read this and don't think Jesus has a sense of humor? So they're like, have you not heard? And Jesus himself is like, or what <laughs> i mean come on that's that's classic and they said to him concerning jesus of nazareth a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before god and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem israel yes and besides all this it is now the third day since these things happened moreover some women of our company amazed us they were at the tomb early in the morning and when they did not find his body they came back saying that they had seen uh, th that they had even seen 
seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, they, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? All that who had spoken? The prophets. He said, how, you, you idiots. How can you not understand and believe this? Every prophet has told you about what's going to happen. He goes on. Jesus didn't lead them in this fool, leave them in this foolish position. He didn't leave them in their ignorance. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus Christ says to him, this should not have surprised you. This should not have surprised you. You say you believe all the prophets. Have you not read your Old Testament, bro? And then he began with Moses, the law, and all the prophets, and he showed them how he was the central point throughout, that Christ was the fulfillment of it all. You remember what he told Nicodemus when he was talking to him about the new birth? He was talking to him about salvation. He said, you must be born again, enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus is like, what you want me to do, climb back up in my mama? Right? And Jesus is like, oh, Nicodemus. You being a teacher of the law, do you not understand these things? You see, Nicodemus should have known because of the law. In John chapter 5, verse 20, uh, 37, I won't go there, but it says that, uh, that all of this, he says, you, talking to the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures diligently, thinking that in them you'll find life, but you fail to realize that these all speak of me. This is why Malachi is, is, now remember, am I just saying this? Or is this in line with the contextual evidence that we find in the text? The whole book has been about my messenger who would, come, who would come to prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant, who is Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is, is that when you see his coming, know that judgment is near. And he tells of how, how it would be a blazing furnace and that he would come in fire and that he would leave the house of Israel desolate with no root or branch. He goes on to say, keep in mind this law. Keep in mind the prophets. You need to study these. You need to understand these. Why? Because the law and the prophets are all speaking of the messenger of the covenant. But they miss the forest for the trees. They get so wrapped up in the do's and the don'ts and making man-made laws to keep people from violating the God-given laws that they completely missed the point that it was faith in God that caused them to walk in God's law and His statutes. And they continued to deny. So with all of that being said, I've, I've made my case. It's a short case. I don't have a lot of time here. And I preach longer than any pastor in Landrum. So you're just going to have to deal with it. All right? I want to show you one thing, though. Turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 11. And we're almost done, okay? Romans chapter 11. Okay, so here's the question. I don't know if I've convinced you. It's not my job to convince you. I just want to lay out the evidence 
give you another line of reasoning so that you can judge for yourself, okay? I may have turned upside down some of y'all's theology. The view in our community and our area is by far a dispensational view, and that's okay. I'm not a dispensationalist, but you need to make the decision for yourself. And if you want a really good breakdown of what dispensational, uh, dispensationalism is, maybe you don't even know why you're a dispensationalist. Keith can really help you out with that. He's, he's helped me to understand dispensationalism far more than I ever would have. I give you another line of reasoning that's convinced me that this day of the Lord, this destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, is what was being spoken of with a picture of what would be coming to. Now, that's where I want to finish, okay? But I want to do it. I'm not going to talk about the, the end, the end, the second coming, which I could have done that, but I don't want to do that. What I want to do is I want to show you how this is absolutely relevant to you because a question that you might be asking in your mind, and you, I think you should be asking in your mind, is if Malachi chapter 4 and much of, you know, D uh, Daniel chapter 9 through 11, Ezekiel, if all of that is speaking of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., which happened roughly, you know, 1,900-some-odd years ago, two, well, 2,000 years, how is that relevant to me? How is that relevant to me? I want, I want to answer it in two ways. One's very short, and the other one, I want to talk about it, Romans 11, and we'll get out. One is, is that I don't believe that 70 A.D., the destruction of, of Jerusalem, the destruction of the nation of Israel, the house of Israel, the destruction of the temple. I don't believe that that was the final judgment. I believe it was judgment upon Israel because God had, had prophesied that. He had warned them. They refused to believe, and he destroyed the house of Israel. And we see a transition, and it's over and over in a text that since you have not believed, it's the kingdom's being taken from you. Matthew chapter 13, I believe. The kingdom's being taken from you, and it's given to the Gentiles. Okay? But what that is is a picture of the cosmic day of the Lord, of the great tribulation, of that, of that final second coming of the Lord, that second coming, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we better be ready. I want to do this with one verse. Well, I'll just quote it to you. Is that the Bible says in Hebrews, it says, In the last days God spoke to us through his prophets. I mean, in those days God spoke to us through his prophets, but in these last days he spoke to us through his son. The book goes on to say, If they were not, uh, if, if God did not take it easy on them, if God did not overlook their sin and they received punishment because they disbelieved them, how much greater will your punishment be if you spurn the word of God, if you spurn the Christ who has come, the Messiah? And so there stands a greater judgment for us in the new covenant that we've heard the gospel and we've disbelieved. And not just a verbal uh, head knowledge, oh yeah, I believe that, but one like Israel that must bear fruit. Okay? Secondly, is this arrogance to think that we have replaced Israel or that we finally got it right where Israel failed. Let me, let me do away with that because that's not what I'm saying. <clears throat> Listen to what Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 17. But if, now, this is speaking of Israel, okay? But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, through you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So the root and the branch picture here is that Israel was the natural branch, and it was broken off. 
and uh, wild olive shoots, Gentiles, were grafted in to the, to the promises of God, and they became part of the tree that is Christ. Jesus is the root. He is the tree. We're grafted in among others and now sharing the nursing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Speaking of Israel. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Remember the fear in Malachi chapter 3? For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. This is to me and you. This is to the Gentiles. We're all in the, well, I imagine most of us in this room are Gentiles. In other words, we're not ethnic Jews, okay? And this is to us. He goes on. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So it, at the end of the day, what we understand is that being in Christ is through faith. It always has been. It always will be. And the only way a Jew can be a true Jew, a true Israelite, is to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way a Gentile can be a part of true Israel, to be saved, to be transformed, is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become one family, one nation, one God, or one uh, children of God, one family of God, and that we, through Christ, are, are redeemed. We are uh, reconciled to God. But the warning stands fast, is that those of you who claim to be Christians, those of us who claim to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we must walk out our faith, lest we prove we were never one of the elect lest we prove that we were never a child of God, lest the destruction that we see in the history books, prophesied in Matthew 24, prophesied in Malachi, prophesied in so many places, lest we see the destruction there be poured out on us, poured out on us a hundredfold if we were to deny the Messiah. Hebrews chapter 4, you can all stand to your feet. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Do not harden your heart, as in the days of old, as they did. But realize that today is the day of salvation. Therefore, while there still remains a chance for us to enter into that rest, let us enter in through the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't put it off. Don't delay. Do not risk not being ready for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do business with God today, friends. Do business with God.